Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today, uh, thanks again to fellow saloner Mike Margolius, we are going to listen to a conversation between Annie Oak and Ishmael Ali, who participated in one of the Psychedelic Seminar series that uh, Mike hosts in San Francisco. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you already know about Annie Oak because uh, she's appeared here in the salon on at least eight previous occasions. And, uh, as you know, Annie is the co-founder of the Women's Visionary Congress, and her theme camp at Burning Man is the host for the Palenque Norte Lectures each year. Also, we'll be hearing from Ishmael Ali, who is an attorney for MAPS and the chair of the Board of Directors for Students for Sensible Drug Policy. So, let's join them now and uh, see if they have some new ideas about psychedelic medicine that we may want to explore. Before we get the show started, though, I want to make a few thank yous. So first thank you is to the San Francisco Psychedelic Society. They're doing a really awesome job having community events regularly here in the Bay Area. And wherever you are in the world, I encourage you to find your local psychedelic society as well. I want to acknowledge here that in the past, historically... There have not been enough women, people of color, people from different communities having these kinds of conversations. And we want to see more of that. And we're here to encourage all communities to have the kind of conversation we're going to have tonight. We want to make sure that this kind of conversation is open to everybody. And we want to move beyond only a very narrow group of people having these kinds of conversations, sitting on the boards of organizations, making policies, we really want to open up that conversation to a much wider group of communities who should be part of those conversations. And on that, I just want to give a shout out to the people here who are here for the first time for an event about this topic. Um, there's a lot of interest expanding in every direction right now, and we're going to talk about that a bit tonight. but. For those of you that are here for the first time, welcome. I'm grateful for your presence here, for the POC, for the queer people, for the trans people, for the people that are outside, that are used to being in the margins. Welcome. And for everyone here, I hope that we can keep in mind that a lot of this conversation we're having, ha having is pushing those of us in every direction out to the margin and hopefully closer in over time. So thank you. So I want to talk about something that happened last week that is going to make it easier for more communities, more people to have these kinds of conversations. It was a Supreme Court ruling. Did you guys hear about this Supreme Court ruling? Who, who here heard about this Supreme Court ruling last week? The Timms versus Indiana case. Right. This ruling was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, and it had to do with something we call policing for profit. And it, it was a ruling about civil forfeiture cases and about setting limits on how police can seize the assets of people they simply believe might be involved in a crime. 
And this kind of civil forfeiture has a chilling effect on speech and on the kind of conversations that we want to be having on these topics. And what happened was, um, it was a case in Indiana. Uh, a guy was arrested for selling several hundred dollars worth of heroin, and they seized his $42,000 Land Rover, which he did not purchase with the proceeds from the drug sale. And uh, he sued to get his Land Rover back, and uh, the local state courts wouldn't do it, went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that the prohibition on excessive fines, which is laid out in the Eighth Amendment attached to the Bill of Rights, also applies to state governments. And Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yes, can we have a round of applause, came back to the court to write this unanimous ruling. In a time of real political polarization, the court was united on this ruling. I'm going to read just a very short excerpt of this ruling because it's an important ruling. This was a profound moment. For good reason, the protection against excessive fines has been a constant shield throughout Anglo-American history. Exorbitant tolls undermine other constitutional liberties. Excessive fines can be used, for example, to retaliate against or chill the speech of political enemies. Thank you, RBG. Yeah. This is an important ruling for people who want to talk about drug policy, for people who want to talk about cognitive liberty, and for people who just want to exercise their First Amendment rights. So thank you very much. And it's encouraging because it's part of a larger trend um, around criminal justice reform generally. And I want to just like zoom out for a bit because one of the things that Annie and I agreed on um, when we were kind of thinking about what we wanted to share today was the importance of starting with the criminalization and the context of criminalization and the real impacts of that on people's day-to-day -day lives because it's easy and exciting to get caught up in a lot of the changes that are occurring and it, especially for people who, are, who have bodies or identities that are not used to being criminalized or that don't, are not criminalized unless they're doing something illegal and even then they sometimes get away with it, it's easy to kind of forget that we are talking about all of this, the medical model, the creation of all these alternative systems in that context. And instead of giving like a whole history of the war on drugs, it's kind of, it's, it's encouraging to see like small shifts happening with civil asset forfeiture, with bail reform, with um, just a general, dare I say, bipartisan attitude about criminal justice reform that I believe does and will in addition to this case, have a lot of impacts on drugs, drug policy, how we talk about them, which is somewhat relevant in the medical context and very relevant for what goes beyond, which we'll get to shortly. So I want to talk about the medical model for a second because the topic of this conversation is going beyond the medical model. So let's start with what lies in the medical model. Um, I think it's important to understand that prohibition has pushed the medical model for psychedelics. It is the primary reason why the medical model has been pushed so hard by activists, by people raising money. It's an artifact of prohibition. 
And it's important to, to take a look at this and also to acknowledge that the medical model offers the promise of much greater access to psychedelic-assisted therapy for people who are suffering from PTSD, depression, trauma, and there's a lot of talk about this these days. It's really great to see this become part of the larger conversation. And for a little bit of context on that, essentially, there are a lot of ways to look at it, but we'll talk about a little bit about what's going on with, at the state and local level around psilocybin. There's a lot of excitement there. But just to kind of add on to what Annie said, part of the reason the medical model kind of is directly in response to prohibition is the fact that working through the federal system, working through a medical system that's regulated at the federal level is basically some of the most protection that a system can have um, in the sense that for changes that occur at state or local levels, there's still the risk of the federal government intervening or these different entities intervening. So the idea is if you start with the most legit, the most regulated framework and work backwards from that, then at the very least that, that progress is protected. And this is particularly relevant now when we have um, formerly the Attorney General Jeff Sessions and now William Barr, both of whom are not exactly friendly toward a lot of the changes that have happened in cannabis law in the, at the state level. So we know that there's kind of this all, there's this constant back and forth between state regulatory systems and the federal government that would be really, really nice to avoid if we could with psychedelic access. Um, I think it's also really important to take a step back and look at some of the real flaws in the medical model. And one of, I think, uh, the most obvious examples of this is the uh, opioid crisis, right? So I'd like to just drop into what we call kind of a shared reality here on a couple of data points. The latest CDC figures that just came out, Center for Disease Control, uh, said in 2017, more than 70,000 people died of overdose, drug overdose deaths in the U.S. And that's about 130 people a day. It's up 10% from 2016. And opioids were responsible for about 68% of those overdose deaths, two out of three fatal overdoses, six-fold increase since 1999, and 36% of those fatal overdoses involved prescription opioids. Americans are now more likely to die from opioid overdose than car crashes. It's actually bringing down our uh, overall life expectancy in the US. So I think it's important to look really critically and ask some really critical questions about the medical model for drug delivery systems. Now the opioid crisis is especially impacting women. This is a really important point. The CDC says between 1999 and 2017, deaths from drug overdoses increased 260% among women 30 to 64 years in age, with the biggest increase in my demographic, women aged 45 to 64. Deaths from overdose of opioids during that time was up 218% for men, 472% for women, right? It's, it's huge. Overdose deaths due to antidepressants increased 300% in this period for women aged 50 to 59 and almost 400% among women ages 60 to 64. So right? we're talking about a 
very literal capital C crisis. That's right. And we're also talking about this desire for people to change their consciousness, dipping into a medical model for opioids that's creating an enormous amount of death and suffering in this regard, especially for women. So that, to me, makes me wonder. Like, you know, we can tease out different effects of what contributed to the crisis, what contributed to the abuse or perversion of a medical model, which at its heart is about access to essential medicine for people who are suffering. Mm -hmm. So what's complicated here? Like what exactly about the opioid or the the opioid system or the medical model is it that you think we should really be looking at? Well, according to the CDC, um, it says women are more likely than men to experience chronic pain and become dependent faster on substances. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I think also we should now really pay close attention to the many class action lawsuits that have been lodged against companies that produce and distribute opioids that are now in the courts. Purdue Pharma, mm-hmm. Insys Pharmaceuticals. That's right, Johnson & Johnson. Hundreds of counties in the U.S. and states have filed these lawsuits against these companies, right, for ignoring warning signs about off-label use, promoting the drugs as non-addictive. The Mass Attorney General, Massachusetts Attorney General, has sued the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma, that produces the painkiller OxyContin. And they say that Purdue Pharma put a premium on selling higher dosages and offered the OxyContin savings card right? Prescription discount card to encourage, which they claim they're alleging, produced a higher rate of addiction. At the same time, you have lawsuits against Insys Pharmaceutical, which interestingly is the company, one of the companies that manufactures fentanyl in the United States, and also happened to put about $500,000 fighting legal access to cannabis in the state of Arizona, Mm -hmm. while simultaneously pursuing a license from the DEA to create synthetic THC. Right. So, so I think it's important to ask some really tough questions, to be real critical thinking about medical models, right? Let's really think about this hard. And, and also, no matter what you think about capitalism, your thoughts on that, know that large pharmaceutical companies are developing therapies using psychedelic materials, and that we should examine their drug development models also closely, how they're making these drugs available to patients, how these companies try to influence providers, how they do training of people who will be providing these substances. One of the cases that a lot of people have been talking about, of course, is concerning a company called Compass Pathways, set up to be the first legal provider of synthesized psilocybin, They got $38 million in funding, 12 to 15 sites in the U.S., mass clinical study to test the drug as treatment for depression. It's a $14 billion market. This is a relatively small company, but there are a lot of big companies right behind them, right? And some of them are already in the market. So I want to talk about this for a bit because there is rightfully, I think, a lot of attention to the bringing on a big players. And I want to tease this out part a little bit because, you know, the uh, Purdue Pharma, Insys Pharmaceuticals, a lot of these companies are 
kind of really good targets because they've done things that clearly have caused harm. Um, and I, I'm actually, I would, in my own mind, kind of compare some of these um, opioid lawsuits to what you saw with cigarette companies, where it was definitely clear that cigarette companies knew for at least 10 years, maybe longer, what cigarettes could do and then prevented that information from getting to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So I want to put a pin in that for transparency because we're going to come back to it. And then at the same time, we're seeing this um, response from the public about pharma in general, about medicine in general. And I would, I would say that that kind of, in some ways, underlies or, or kind of comes out of this, this distrust that I think has kind of developed over time with the pharmaceutical industry, given that so much of the model is based on palliative treatment over the course of an extended period of time without necessarily causing, like, resulting in a treatment. And I think that there's this really interesting push and pull between people who are wanting to relieve their suffering, to engage with these systems through medical frameworks, which have a lot of benefits, which we'll go into in a bit as well, but really looking critically at, um, in fact, how some of these delivery systems have failed, actually, to help the people that they're most kind of supposed to help. And let's look at how pharmaceutical companies operate, right? Um, they try to get a market share, they try to get a return for investors and their, uh, their venture funders. Let's, let's look at a couple things that Compass Pathways has done. First, they got nonprofit status, then to get some intellectual property, uh, then they became a for-profit. Uh, they have pursued contracts that give them power over the research of academics who worked with them. They've lavished researchers with expensive dinners and paid trips and attempted to block the publication of research if it interfered with their commercial interests. None of this is particularly unusual. Pharmaceutical companies do this all the time, right? This is, there's no psychedelic exceptionalism here. This is, this is what pharmaceutical companies sometimes do, right? And I want to complicate that a bit. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I've noticed is that, especially people that I've seen in my generation, and we're like not able to unsee the collateral damage of these major venture capital-backed frameworks. Mm -hmm. We're not able to unsee the fact that the pursuing of profit did underlie many of the decisions that INSYS made, that Purdue made, that a lot of these cigarette companies made. So when I'm thinking about the medical model and thinking about these concerns, or kind of like these realities that you share, the shared consensual reality of what pharma is really like, mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, what, what about the... What about the delivery of the medicine do you think could be done differently or should be done differently? Or what do you think we should be looking for? Hmm. Um, well, let's, let's go back to some of the arguments that, that they made. They say, well, you know, these intellectual property practices are needed for a sustainable business model, mm -hmm. right? They got a, a patent in the UK for psilocybin manufacturing uh, methods. It will give them a, a cost advantage. It will make it harder for others to enter the market. And, you know, it could make the drug more expensive, right, for, for consumers, right? But, you know, this is, this is how businesses do business. They, they try, to, they try to, to get a corner on the market and make money back for their investors. Uh, 
So, and, and they're also, you know, have a contract with the lab that produces their psilocybin and they, they're trying to block the attempts of other nonprofits like the USONA Institute to produce the psilocybin too. So this is, this is um, sort of, you know, what they do, what other pharmaceutical companies totally. do. I think it's important to, to anticipate that... Compass Pathways is only a small company, that there are much bigger companies behind them coming up into this market because it's huge. Yeah, I've right? been thinking lately, how many people here are involved in the cannabis industry? Right. There's probably a good chunk of people here. Yeah. One of the things that I, I've been kind of saying in response to that is that like, I appreciate and think it's critical that we bring attention to these issues. And I really do believe that in five or eight years, we're going to be looking back on this like as this quaint time where there are only like one or two large for-profit entities that are bringing money into the space. Right. Let's, well, let's look at one of the bigger companies that's already in this space, because these companies are already here. So there have been some concerns about the launching of S-ketamine, ketamine nasal spray by Janssen. It's a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, a massive pharmaceutical company, right? And, and this ketamine nasal spray will be used to treat depression together with oral antidepressants. And it looks like it'll be approved by the FDA. And, and the question is, how will it be used? Will it be used for long-term treatment? You know, will it be used every week? Of course, the question is the potential for addiction, right? We're right back to the opioid question right? Is this a, a way to a better drug delivery system to, will this lead to uh, addiction to ketamine? Uh, of course, you know, lots of ketamine clinics are already offering intravenous ketamine. Do we really need this drug delivery system? My, my point here is that with huge entities like Johnson & Johnson entering the market, we have to ask really hard questions. And, and to your point about different structures, yes, I think we need to create different structures, but know that we're up against the Johnson & Johnsons of the world. We can't make that go away. I want to add a little bit more context to what's going on with Johnson & Johnson, because it is a really illustrative kind of example here. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, what's, being, what's likely being announced is that Johnson & Johnson will be releasing this nasal spray for ketamine, for S-ketamine, excuse me, which for people who are suffering depression and who have tried other treatments and don't have access to other kinds of ketamine treatments, for example, mm -hmm. is great because it means that there may be another drug on the market that it can actually work. And as many of you here in the room know, racemic ketamine, generic ketamine, is already approved for a different indication for pain, for anesthesia. It's already used by ketamine providers. It's really cheap and it's off patent. So, You've got current access to generic ketamine that already exists, the providers in this room, that are able to get the medicine in that context legally, provided legally. And because S-ketamine is a minor shift and the delivery system, fancy nasal spray, which, doctor will, which actually doctors will have to give you. They're actually doing it so the doctors will have to give you the nasal spray, which is interesting because this is not a particularly challenging. It's not, it's not like an IV. It's not like an IV where you need someone with a bag and someone put something in your vein. It's like mm. a very different delivery system. But point is that the fact that these drugs are off patent, that MDMA is off patent, that psilocybin itself cannot be patented for various reasons, does not mean 
that people with money and intelligence and a really good working knowledge of how patents and intellectual property works will not do what they can to secure that information, protect their investments, do what they've got to do. It's complicated. And I want to just back up and say there's some really good things to the medical framework in general. Like, we're talking a lot about the way it's applied, which is definitely problematic, and I think we should go back to that. Mm -hmm. But there are people, and we'll, we'll, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of underground work and non-medical frameworks as well, but there are people who really need high-quality, quality-controlled product in a safe setting with professionals that have accountability. Um, I would love for my grandmother and for people like her who are managing neurological issues like Parkinson's mm -hmm. to get something that has been vetted that I can get consistently forever that I don't have to make sure it's in stock at CBCB to pick up. I would love for there to be some route of access to the super high quality, super vetted medicine in a context where there's some sort of licensing accountability for the people who are providing it. And not everyone necessarily requires a level of sensitivity. One of the things that I've learned and been looking at, back to the ketamine example, is that one of the things that's really interesting about ketamine in particular, and it's a good kind of thing to be tracking right now as we get closer to legal access of MDMA and psilocybin and other substances, is that with ketamine, you have a whole process of accountability and systems that are being built around it between practitioners, best practices, et cetera, which are happening in a legal gray area, or in a legal area, but it's still gray, it's still gray in the sense that there hasn't been the kind of like oversight or guidance from American medical associations or different entities like that like there have been. So we're now in a place where we have a lot of fertile ground to build these best practices, to build these systems, and to think about well, what are the creative ways that we want to make sure that people do have access, whether it's in this highly vetted context and what happens when we go outside? So. Well, I, I want to go back to something that you brought up, which is the issue of accountability. I think accountability is really important, especially in markets where monopolies have a lot of power, right? So let's talk about how monopolies work in a market. Um, they often try to get a monopoly on a substance or a therapy or um, a delivery system that allows them to make more money in a market and keep out competitors, you know, pay back their shareholders, etc. So, but it's not just for-profit, it's, it's non-profits as well. MAPS will have a monopoly on MDMA for five years. Yeah, right? we'll have data exclusivity, mm -hmm. yeah, which means that we'll be the only ones that will be able to sell generic MDMA upon approval for five years after. That's mm -hmm. right. And big players like Johnson & Johnson try to go for a monopoly. Small players like Compass Pathways, they, they do, you know, they have their tactics for trying to get a monopoly going. Monopolies are not very good at regulating themselves, right? The nature of monopolies, they're incentivized to um, perhaps even conceal ethical violations, not reveal them because there's too much money at stake, right? Um, I want to argue for really strong, independent regulatory bodies for people involved in psychedelic-assisted therapies, independent oversight, awareness of conflict of interest. Um, I think there'll always be attempts by monopolies in whatever market we're talking about to try to co-opt regulatory bodies, and I think that 
in our quest for critical thinking about these issues, it's going to be really important to always be vigilant and fight for independence of regulatory oversight and to be alert for efforts to undermine any, any independent regulatory body and for the whole community of people who keep track of these issues to do that collectively. And this is a critical point because we're at this interesting, we're like, um, if anyone here who's like grown their hair out, like there's like an awkward phase where like your hair like sits on your head, fine, and then when it's long, it's fine, but when it's in the middle, it's like this weird poofiness. We're in the weird poofy phase of the psychedelic <laughs> renaissance, if you will, in the sense that we have a lot of options. Um, wear a hat or no but actually we we're in this place where there's an interplay there's still an ongoing dialogue between the community broadly defined people who are actively taking psychedelics who are engaged with psychedelic culture who are interested in bringing people into it who believe that they could benefit from it in a medical context and the creation of the capital i industry and i think like going back to this cannabis example we have this time where we can learn from things that happen in other industries and in other spaces from ketamine and Johnson and Johnson to what's going on with Compass to what ha what's going on in the cannabis industry mm -hmm. and kind of pick and choose from these different systems to kind of build something both within the regulatory medical regulatory framework in the best way that we possibly can and um, do that in a way that's aligned with the needs and expectations of us all, not you all, us all, th those of us who are participating in this dialogue. So maybe now is a good time to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that MAPS is doing. Yes. Because I think that it is um, critical to be concerned about these things. And I think that it's also important that we as an organization, that MAPS as an organization, is able to be transparent about how we're responding to these real concerns and how we... Um, are hoping to model something different. Yes. I, and I would just like to say that yeah. this, this conversation about uh, oversight and regulatory bodies has been going on for years. Right. Years and years and years. And many people in the MAPS community have been part of this conversation. And it's really moving forward with much greater urgency now for all the reasons. And I'm yeah. really happy to see that happen. Yeah, and I think there's probably four pieces, kind of three and a half pieces that I think would be relevant here that are worth throwing in mm -hmm. because we're in the midst of developing systems okay. and it's in some ways novel in the sense that we're trying to create systems of accountability for something that kind of hasn't been done before at least in the overground in the visible way mm -hmm. and on the same at the same time we're building off of systems that exist in a lot of other places in a lot of other um, modalities of healing in a lot of other conflict resolution contexts so we're really trying to like pick and choose the best that we can and hold that close so there's a few things one your point about the independent advisory board is a real, or the independent certifying board is really important, I think. And right now we have the entities like MAPS and Compass and USONA and Hefter that are doing drug development. And in the process of the drug development, they're also developing therapy modalities or treatment or um, th treatment modalities. And that's all fine and good. It's really beautiful because in some ways it's the birth of this new, or at least the birth of the, 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 the visible piece of these modalities. But... You're right, we don't yet have super visible active third-party actors. There's definitely CIS, there's other people that are doing trainings, there's other entities that are doing that. But because we're still kind of in this awkward phase, 
we're still waiting for people that are not doing, that are not working in the drug development context, maybe therapists, maybe not, who are interested in creating these oversight bodies. Um, the fact is, a lot of major industries, including pharma, have consumer oversight bodies, have consumers and people who are looking at these issues mm -hmm. from totally um, kind of separated, kind of outside of the conflict of interest perspectives, because at least in theory, those systems like, believe that that independent oversight is important. So we agree and think it's critical that that happens. So first off, yes. And I, my understanding is that there are efforts um, f between therapists, you know, outside of the outside of the MAPS network, outside of any kind of formal network, that are creating these like third-party professional certification bodies, which is really exciting because that means that we have more people, which means more dialogue and sure, more opinions and more perspectives. But I think that's generally a good thing. So that's one. The other is the creation of the actual code of ethics for the MDMA therapists, which of course draws on codes of ethics from other kinds of therapy, including Hokomi, um, and other kind of forms of altered state consciousness because people, as you may know, are more sensitive in these altered states and do require a certain duty of care, a certain expectation of care for, tr for treatment providers that um, traditional systems of accountability may not be prepared to or have the range to, to engage with. So part of building a code of ethics, though, is, is also a code of accountability. And it's like, what exactly do you do when someone violates a code of ethics? Because when your whole society is built on exile and isolation, and anytime anyone does something wrong, you send them to jail, mm. which is really hard to advocate for when you're working with people in the underground, mm -hmm. because we've kind of developed a suspicion to the criminal legal system for some reason or not Absolutely. another. It's really hard to create systems of accountability that are not right. just replications of that isolate and, and exile. And I think that that's a big piece. We'll come back to that. But I think I want to flag that because... A lot of what we're trying to do is not just about the psychedelics. It's not just about the modality. A big piece of it is the modality of healing, he, healing and the access to treatment. Mm -hmm. But it's also all these auxiliary pieces, including, well, what happens when th something goes wrong? What happened? What do we do now so we're not dealing with the Purdue of LSD in 15 years? I don't, I'm not even sure how that would work, but you might have seen that someone did a protest against Purdue. They made a giant heroin spoon, and they put a giant heroin spoon in front of the Purdue offices. Yeah. And it's like a massive piece of art. Like, what's the, is, what's the, is it like a giant sheet of blotter acid? That would be like the protest against the LSD, the, the corporate LSD, you guys? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so th those are two pieces. And then I guess the, the, the last is something I'm really excited about, which is the creation of the actual ethical framework or corporate social responsibility framework for MAPS and the Public Benefit Corporation. So I want to spend just a second talking about that because it's really interesting and I think responds to some of the concerns that you were mentioning that we have about pharma in general. So as Annie mentioned earlier, we have like these major concerns about pharma. Usually it's backed by venture capital. Usually there are all these interests that are really focused on bringing back profit, which is maybe in tension with healing people. So that means that for people that like MAPS who are trying to develop a drug in the pharmaceutical framework, you're right, no psychedelic exceptions, and we are doing regulatory compliance. We're following FDA's rules. You know, we've definitely made some changes within FDA, too. We've definitely done some policy work in there. But for the most part, we're doing a process of regulatory compliance of following the FDA's rules in order to show that the FDA ought to approve this particular drug. So we have a couple things that are particularly interesting, and one being this model that we're working at with MAPS, which is the nonprofit contact, the nonprofit entity, which is what I work for, which is the sole investor in a for-profit public benefit corporation, which is actually going to be selling the MDMA and training the therapists. The reason this is relevant is because it's very unusual for a company to have one stakeholder and for that stakeholder to be a nonprofit. So these are this kind of like hybrid public benefit corp model is relatively new. It's something that was developed in the last 15, 20 years. And it's exciting because it means to me 
that Mass has this opportunity to create uh, a model for a pharmaceutical company that's operating within the FDA framework mm -hmm. that also not, that does more than just bring a Schedule One drug to market, but also offers an alternative vision for what drug sales, drug distribution, what drug access can look like with all of these other pieces in mind. Mm -hmm. One more piece that I'll add is because MDMA therapy, and I would say that this is probably true of mushroom, of, of psilocybin, and I think will likely be true of a lot of other psychedelic modalities, not as true with ketamine, but true in other contexts, is that we're not necessarily working on a palliative care model. We're not necessarily saying take the MDMA home and take it, microdose it every day for you know, the next however long before you're okay. The model is about treatment. The model is about actually changing people's mental health state for the long term. So I just bring all that up because we're trying to push some boundaries here. I can't, pre I can't, predict, about how on, I can't predict how successful it will be. But I do hope that, and I want this to kind of, I really want MAPS and the Public Benefit Corporation to at least show what's possible given the context, the constraints that we have. I recognize that I personally and we personally, I think that we can and should bring a lot of crit critique and accountability and visibility to these issues. And I don't think I'm going to stop the venture capital funder from putting a bunch of money behind the, giant, the next big LSD thing. So instead, I think that the thing that I want to do, and I believe that we can and should do within this community, whether it's at the psychedelic society level, whether it's MAPS, whether it's different kind of groups, is how do we build in systems of transparency, accountability, visibility, that we then ask the public, ask our community to hold ourselves responsible to, hold ourselves accountable to, to, at the very least, impact the spaces that we're working in and the treatments that we're working in. I don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but I believe that with kind of help from transformative, econo transformative economic models, whether it's cooperative ownership of farm and manufacturing distribution of cannabis, whether it's collectively owned dispensaries, whether it's a pharmaceutical company that has one shareholder and is trying to do something that may not be completely in pursuit of profit, but is actually pursuit of other things, what would that actually look like? So I think over the next few years, we're going to see. I mean, M MAPS will be selling MDMA soon, within the next couple of years. So having some of this stuff in place really matters. Yeah, and I, I think uh, encouraging transparency and independent oversight and having the community uh, get involved in these conversations is really critical. And I, I really uh, look forward to seeing what kind of structures are created. You know? It's creating an entirely new uh, world of, uh, of accountability and oversight and asking some difficult questions and coming up with new systems, which is really exciting, actually. And, and I think I would argue especially important for women, right? Because uh, when women undergo psychedelic-assisted therapy, they are perhaps, in some cases, more vulnerable to sexual exploitation, to, uh, to being abused by unethical providers. And, and so... Uh, and not just women, of course, but I, you know, from my own perspective, I think it's really important to stand up and really be in defense of 
people who are receiving this therapy and make sure they're not re-traumatized by unethical practitioners. So now might be a good time to talk about accountability, which is like the sexiest topic. Everyone loves talking about how uh, we're going to hold yeah, people accountable. Let's talk about accountability, about right. So we have this uh, context now where um, the progress in the medical model is creating a super strong demand for uh, what, what do you call it, unsupervised social use? Uh, unsupervised self-experimentation. There we go, there we go. So w- we have a lot of movement happening in the, in the medical framework. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. Yes. Access to medicine, complicated capitalism politics, all that's happening. But that means that there's a lot of movement happening in the underground. And that is challenging for a, bunch of different, for a few different reasons. How is, yeah. that, how is that coming up for you? <laughs> <laughs> It's a big challenge. The medical, the focus and attention, media attention on medical models has created a very strong demand for transformative social experiences in community settings. I want to be clear here, the vast majority of people who use psychedelics will use them in social settings, not in clinical settings, right? We just have to remind ourselves of this. Totally. Uh, you know, most people will, uh, will seek out a social setting to have this kind of transformative experience. But now that the medical model is making this great promise for transformation and healing to remove yourself or a person from pain, uh, it's creating enormous pressure on social systems that are created to create containers for psychedelic experiences. And um, myself and many other people who produce uh, transformative and immersive art events um, are really thinking carefully about best practices for unsupervised self-experimentation and really trying to share what we believe to be good best practices for creating these kinds of containers. And I want to say that Part of this is a a really beautiful interplay between people who are working within the medical model and people who are working within, let's just call it the social model, right? Because in the events that I produce and many other people produce, uh, there are, for example, quiet spaces where people can receive direct care. Uh, At the events that we produce in my production company that I run with my partners, Take Three Presents. We have a quiet space where people can come for direct care and direct support. And we recruit people who are trained within the medical model to staff those spaces to create support in those spaces because they've received some really advanced training. So and of course, the MAPS and the Zendo project do the same thing right? Create supportive care spaces for people in social settings and reach out to people trained within the medical model to provide that expertise and that training. It feeds back into the social model very nicely. So let's talk about this for a little bit because I, I, you know, we started this conversation thinking about how medicalization, this idea of creating legal access through a medical framework, which is federally viable, uh, is safer, but it's in response in some ways to prohibition. It's not, it may not be how access would organically occur, but for that framework. So I'm thinking now about risk reduction and about how, you know, I, I want to go down the line a little bit more into where we, uh, where we can vision what things would look like independently of that framework. But right now, we're still operating in a framework where 
there is the concern about criminality. There is the concern. There is the very real lack of mental health access to mental health care services mm -hmm. in the world generally, much less at events. I was just at a um, at an event last week speaking about um, speaking to event producers who are working with cannabis mm -hmm. in the Bay Area because there are a lot of event producers that really want to have cannabis infused events, and um, it's interesting. And I appreciate that producers of cannabis events are thinking about how to take care of people who are dosing themselves in these spaces. Something that I don't, I mean, hear at least so actively with other kinds of safe consumption sites for alcohol, like bars. And I'd be really interested in thinking more about, like, what, what are the norms for now, while we're still, you know, operating within this prohibition of supreme, what are the norms that we should be thinking about in these social contexts, whether it's for individual guides who work with individuals or with groups or who are throwing events? What are the things that we should be thinking about? Well, I, I think that we should, um, we should acknowledge that people can have transformative experiences in social settings. That social settings in, in where people are exposed to, to art, to music, to community, can also be a transformative experience. And that people who are producing events must just assume for the point of argument that people may come to their events and they may take psychedelic substances, and they may have uh, transformative experiences, and they may also need a certain amount of support. Let's go back to the idea of, of the quiet space and direct care and, and uh, Zendo and mm -hmm. those kinds of services. It's really important to offer these kinds of services as best practices. It's also really important to understand that people who work in these services have, are exposing themselves to liability when they work in these services, when they donate their time, when they volunteer to provide that kind of support. And this came in sharp relief, you know, two years ago at Lightning in a Bottle where a participant died who had been in the Zendo, who had received care from medical providers at the event. Her, this woman's family just sued everybody. Right? They sued MAPS, they sued Lightning in a Bottle, which was the event where this took place, they sued the medical provider. You know, it requires a certain amount of courage because there is a lot of liability involved. And it's very possible that people volunteering themselves for these services could really expose themselves to liability and they need to be protected. And they need to ask themselves, what kind of protection is MAPS offering me if I volunteer in the Zendo? I think it's a really important question. Totally. I'm happy to report that we do have liability insurance at this point. Excellent. But, 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 I, but I think <laughs> that those are good questions. And I think from the perspective of people who are engaging with, um, these, with spaces, especially like in the current paradigm, mm -hmm. to be thinking about, like, well, what's that like, edgy place between what we are able to legally do mm -hmm. and what we must do ethically to create safety for people who we know will not necessarily follow the law, independently of your opinion of whether or not it's the right thing to do a psychedelic in a social context or at a festival. Right. The reality that people do it means that for us as a community, bringing that responsibility forward and kind of really not letting go, not, not isolating and separating ourselves from the reality that the people who are seeking these experiences are a lot like us and are a lot like our family members who 
maybe will never take a psychedelic drug until it's given to them by their doctor in a white coat. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, while people are seeking these experiences in uncontrolled contexts, outside of clinical contexts, really bringing awareness of what is motivating that, knowing that we can't know the different places that people are coming from, that the least we can do is treat them with the dignity and respect of having access to the services that sometimes in a legal gray area must be provided. Because we as a community are deciding that we want to participate, actively participate in the creation of safe spaces for people who are just seeking themselves, just seeking that non-dual state that Alicia was joking about earlier. Absolutely. I, I think it's, I'd like to go back to a question of best practices here. Totally. Uh, because there are a lot of people, myself included, and many other people who produce events who are uh, actively really exploring and looking at best practices. So here's some best practices that I really embrace and that I think are um, current best thinking for uh, reducing risk in social settings where these substances may be used. For example, I really support events that do not serve alcohol. Alcohol is the business model for most of the entertainment industry. The events I produce, we do not run a bar, we do not run our business model on alcohol sales, and we don't let other people run bars at our events. We work with a community of artists. The artists cannot use alcohol in their art pieces, right? We're removing this uh, business model from our events. We have to be more creative about financing and about how we, uh, how we think about entertainment, quote unquote, right? Another thing we do, we always offer sobriety support groups. If you want to be supported in your sobriety at our event, we will have several of those groups a day where you can come and be supported in your sobriety. We need to support people who are acting on sobriety in their own lives. I think it's really important to do that. A couple other things. Um, we uh, create a direct care spaces. We also run uh, internal security at our events. We have a group of rangers who are our health and safety team. We have a, a rapid response and de-escalation team for conflict at the events. We have a mediation group that considers conflicts and complaints, you know, from people throughout the year in between events. And we recruit from people with training in the therapeutic community to serve on these volunteer teams. We create that knowledge and those best practices internally inside our community instead of outsourcing them. One thing we do outsource is if there is a conflict and or somebody has been involved in a consent violation, we go to the larger community of therapists. Um, and I want to give a shout out here for the California Institute for Integral Studies. They train terrific therapists mm -hmm. who will not judge you based on the drugs you do or the kind of sex you have. Thank you. Um, and we can, if somebody in our community needs that kind of therapeutic support, we can do a referral out to a CIS therapist or other groups of therapists in the community. So these therapists receiving training for providing 
psychedelic assisted therapy are, are creating an enormous wealth of knowledge that we can reach out to to help solve conflict in our community. Conflict destroys community if you don't address it, if you don't create safe spaces to make sure that consent is something that's upheld and when people, for example, have a situation where their consent is not respected, that something happens, that there's a process for investigating that and making sure that community values are upheld. So I want to draw attention to the fact that some of you may have noticed that a lot of what we're talking about is not actually about psychedelics. It's about the frameworks within which they're used. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important kind of meta point because I, I've been kind of joking lately. I don't know if it's very funny, but that psychedelics are like, the glittery rainbow gate into our shadow. And it's really fun and it is really encouraging and really interesting to be able to talk about um, unsupervised social use or creative kind of contexts or treatment and healthcare. And like, it is really interesting to talk about the psychedelia. I mean, we're in San Francisco where like, you know, this community here is kind of in some ways birthed out of what we know as American psychedelia. And that to me is really exciting because it tells me that there's like kind of norms being built and things being established, but they're not just about the tripping. They're about how we treat each other. They're about the safety that we consider baseline for the people that are in our community. The standard of care that many people that are working in these events that are working in these spaces are holding themselves to is higher than what most people what most event spaces, what most producers are talking are thinking about. So this might be a good transition into the future. Right. So for the future, I would like to advocate for something that I believe is the best practice, and this is on-site, on-demand reagent testing. Right? What I mean by reagent testing... Yeah. Can we have some applause for this? Woo! Best practices, best practices. People sometimes acquire substances. They're not exactly sure what's in these substances. They should be trained to learn how to use commercially available reagent testing kits that can be bought on Amazon, online, through DanceSafe, which is a great nonprofit organization. A Amazon just stops carrying them. Like this week. Oh, bad, yeah. bad, Amazon bad. Amazon and a bunch of other online retailers stopped carrying them this week. Go I think there was Dance a guidance Safe. or something happened. Yeah, yes. support DanceSafe. DanceSafe. DanceSafe.org. We're going to give you a big shout out. All right. I believe that people who produce events should invite DanceSafe or other organizations to come and provide on-demand reagent testing at their events so that people can make sure that whatever substance they're taking is the substance they think it is, so that it, they are not taking adulterated substances, and in particular, they're not taking substances that might be contaminated by fentanyl, right? It's a synthetic opioid. It's very cheap to produce. It's very small. It's, it's easy to smuggle. <laughs> so let's, let's data point again. This is really important. It's, tw it's 20 to 50 times more potent than heroin, right? And, and it, in 2017, it, um, for the, where we have the last data for this, the incidence of um, 
overdose deaths from fentanyl increased 45%, right? In 2017, it's showing up in heroin, oxycodone, Xanax, and cocaine. Here's a data point for you. 37% of the cocaine-related overdose deaths in New York City in 2016 involved fentanyl. Thank you right? for saying that, because a lot of people use cocaine, mm -hmm. maybe more, especially in social public settings, than they use heroin. Right. And a lot of people are overdosing from fentanyl and cocaine. So yes. if, you have, if you or your friends use cocaine, I know this is a little bit of deviance from the topic, but it's critical public health information that I think everyone should know. If you or someone you know uses cocaine, get fentanyl test strips, use it. People are overdosing a lot. It's very sad. We don't want more of our friends to die. That's right. Um, uh, I think that event producers should offer reagent testing, including testing for fentanyl. Right? This is really important. This is a public health outreach. You can keep people from dying. Um, you know, researchers at uh, University of California, San Francisco said in December that fentanyl contamination most likely spreads because of heroin and prescription pill shortages, also because it's cheaper for wholesalers than heroin, and low-level dealers often don't know they're selling it, right? There could also be contamination, cross-contamination in packaging. There are all sorts of reasons it could show up, but it's in the supply of substances that people are doing. And event producers in social settings should offer fentanyl testing and reagent testing. So this is a good segue, I think, to full loop this conversation, actually, because one, we can have a whole event on what, why fentanyl is so prevalent. But the reason I want to use it to kind of, I want to come back to the topic of crimin criminality and criminalization, mm -hmm. because one of the reasons fentanyl is so prevalent is that when you're, when our whole system for fighting the war on drugs is based on supply-side reduction, which basically means fumigating coca crops in the Andes, um, trying to burn every single poppy in the entirety of the country of Afghanistan. Um, it also means that people who are smuggling drugs in, the, in underground contexts are incentivized to basically proliferate drugs that are smaller, that right. are easier to smuggle. The, the existence of fentanyl in the drug supply, the poisoning of the drug supply by fentanyl is a direct result of prohibition. It's directly coming out of the, criminalizing, the criminalized framework that we're currently in. And on that, I kind of want to zoom out a little bit because we're talking a lot about safe spaces for people in events. And I think that it would be, it's critical here to also remember what it means to have a space, safe space for people in the world, which I think comes down to criminality, of identities, of behaviors. And one of the interesting, plays where, one, one of the interesting places where this overlaps is the question about medicalization. So what exactly does medicalization do to criminalization? So what happens when we make something medically legal? Does that mean that criminal penalties no longer exist? The answer, unfortunately, is no. As many of you know, selling legal drugs in illegal contexts remains illegal. So even if MDMA becomes medically available, even if psilocybin becomes medically available, the FDA alone, FDA approval alone, is not going to actually change the criminality. And until people feel safer outside of their doctor's office, we may not see the proliferation of these organic free communities that we're looking for. So I think we need to talk about other things like sensing and decriminalization. And I think for us to be thinking about 
psychedelic systems of the future, we have to be thinking, if we really want to be visionary, we have to be thinking about them in decriminalized context, where we can really imagine what it would look like for an organic, community-led, accountable, collaborative, ideally cooperatively owned vision <laughs> of something can emerge. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and I, also, I also think that it's, this is going to be a, a progression. It's going to take time. In the meantime, there needs to be some critical outreach done. I'd like to give an example again of best practices. I'm the co-founder of a nonprofit called the Women's Visionary Council. Woo! We produce the Women's Visionary Congress, which is going to happen again in June. One of the important things that we've been doing for four years is doing risk reduction workshops. We teach people how to use naloxone to prevent opioid overdose. Can you mention really quickly what's naloxone for the people who don't know? Because it's Nalox critical that we know. Naloxone uh, blocks opioid receptors in the body and prevents people from dying of an opioid overdose. Uh, we teach people how to use naloxone. We teach people how to use a milligram scale accurately to weigh precisely so that they don't overdose themselves. We teach volumetric measuring. And we also teach people how to use reagent testing kits, which they can get on their own. So these are best practices for right now. And I think that this is knowledge that should be shared. We, I believe firmly that knowledge should not be uh, put behind some sort of wall, that it should be shared openly among all community members. Now, while this is happening, I think that as we move towards medical use of substances, that people within the medical model should continue to push for decriminalization, for sentencing reform, and for getting substances out of Schedule 1. Because all those people who are donating all those tens of millions of dollars to MAPS need those substances out of Schedule 1 to stop being prosecuted for just exploring those substances on their own. Yeah, coming back to this whole medical framework, one of the things that we missed is that some of like this system, the medical system, um, the criminal legal system, we talk a lot about, we critique them a lot. And a lot of people argue that they're working badly. Um, some people, myself included, are more of the belief that they're working very well, but that these kind of, kind of secondary impacts, this collateral damage is kind of part of the system. It's actually something that can't really be unstuck from it in its current state. Hmm. And I think that one of the challenges that comes up when thinking about whether it's sentencing reform or the medical model is that we're really trying to like, break our way out of these boxes that for many years have been presented to us as the only frameworks within which this stuff can happen. And part of the attention that I see coming from uh, places like Oregon and Denver where they're looking at alternative systems that are outside of the federal system, that are outside of the medical model, or that are kind of adjacent to or related to the medical model but may not... Um, be existing in the federal framework is really an enthusiasm for what that could look like without those constraints. Mm -hmm. I can't not 
I can't, I can't like, totally remove my realist lens. I'm thinking, like, what would actually work? What, what, what can we actually do? But part of the many, one of the many values I think that psychedelics offer is the ability to recognize not only that there is a box in the first place, that the boundaries that we're working within are boundaries that are kind of imposed, but also the possibility that we as individuals, as a collective, as people empowered within the political civic process, do have options to push and to seek systems that are not necessarily fitting in that. Now, it's going to be really hard to convince people that um, the citizens of any random state should create from scratch a whole psychedelic system that is going to be effective in making sure that people get good psychedelic therapy. That's a big lift. But the, the, they're not, it's not like they're not going to try. It's not like they're not going to try. They're going to try in Oregon, you know. They're going to try in Denver. And this is just the beginning. It's really just the tip of the iceberg for state initiatives, right? In addition to FDA federal regulation. Totally. There's efforts in Oakland going on. Shout out to y'all. Um, there's efforts in Oakland going on. There are, there are people talking about efforts in California. Right. There's obviously what a lot of people here know about in Oregon, in Denver. There is inevitably going to be attention that works outside of these frameworks that I was talking about earlier, outside of the federal medical framework, um, outside of even pushing like Congress to reschedule. So that brings me to what we need to do and what we can do as a community to ensure that we're prepared for that kind of attention from venture capital, right. from really, really enthusiastic people in different states that are like, we're, gonna, we're not going to wait for FDA approval. Nope. We need, you know, this is critical. We're urgent. We're in a crisis. We're in an overdose crisis. We are in crisis of suicide, of suicide, of despair deaths, of pain, of suffering, of isolation. There's a lot going on. Climate crisis. Mm -hmm. People are freaked out. We don't really have the time to wait. Right. They're it's not going to wait it's for urgent. FDA to, you know, go through all the hoops, most right? Of, most of this crowd didn't wait for FDA approval. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think that brings me then to, like, what are these pieces that need to be included? And um, I want to say a few things. I know that we have, we have a few more minutes before we, we want to take questions. So right. um, I want to list just a few things that I really would love to see us start to develop, and I think are already happening. Um, one, the question about rites of passage mm. and the stewarding of knowledge. Yes. I say that because one of the things that we... That we we really want to acknowledge, I really want to acknowledge is that this psychedelic, uh, the remembering that's happening around psychedelics right now is not happening in a vacuum. For many, it's something that's been happening for 50, 60 years. 600, 6,000. And for many, it's longer and yeah. older. And I think one of the things to remember for people who are engaging with these topics is that when you especially participate in plant medicine practices that have indigenous roots, that continue to be practiced, by, practiced and taught by indigenous people, that continue to be held by people who, held by people who have been criminalized, not just for the substances that have been at the center of their practice, but also their literal identities, their literal cultural practices, their actual, their actual prayer, puts a lot of responsibility, I think, on people coming from the global north or the west or the people with fair skin mm -hmm. who are engaging with these practices. And I think when we're thinking on the large scale about what we need to do 
it doesn't just mean taking from systems that already exist. It means looking at what has worked and incorporating that into what we do know, which is right now existing in a, in a country with 320 million people. It's a lot. It's a lot. The scaling of those systems is really big. So rites of passage, questions about initiation. And one big piece that I really want to make sure we talk about is this question about intergenerational knowledge mm -hmm. and the transfer of knowledge. Because, you know, my parents are immigrants. They come from old, long-standing cultures in different places of the world. And one of the things that we've noticed in my family is how challenging it is in this context to, in, in the American context, to really continue the threads of tradition that have existed. So I think part of what we can do here is maybe not build new ones per se, but certainly reach back, reach back in our own ancestry and reach back to what those lineages look like and pull from that. Each one of us has that. Um, I think we have to wrap up. I think we have to keep, we can, I think we could keep talking for a lot longer, but I think we have to take questions. I think we do. I'd like to, and I agree with what you're saying about reaching back into lineages, acknowledging that communities have been using these substances for many thousands of years. And we need to acknowledge many different ways of knowing beyond qualitative and quantitative research, right? Really different ways of knowing, traditional ways of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing, and respect and honor that together with the medical model as it moves forward. And I want to say one more thing before we take questions. I want to imagine future psychedelic systems grounded in respect for human rights. This is a human rights issue. Cognitive liberty is a human rights issue. A racist drug war is a human rights issue. This for me is a human rights discussion. Always has been and always will be, fundamentally. And we should be in alliance with other people fighting for human rights and justice around the world. Thank you. Good. We could go on and on and on. Thank you, Annie and Izzy. Um, we'll take questions from this microphone over here. Come up, step up, and if you want to line up over here, everyone who wants to ask a question. Hi. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, so I, uh, I run a publication, and... I'm extremely preoccupied with the question of how to create better media around psychedelics um, and all of the range of topics that you've brought up here. And sometimes I kind of feel like my heart is like failing me a little bit because it's like, you know, there's this wonderful world that we can imagine and that some of us have even participated in or witnessed where there's this like community support and you have these different types of spaces where you can participate and there's guides who can help you, and there's medical testing, and like we're all able to envision this even better world from there. But then you look at reality for the vast majority of America, and it's like, I don't even, I'm not even sure how to signpost the, the spaces on the way from where most of the world is to where, to the place that we can see who are in this community. And so from that perspective of like trying to, trying to create something better and signpost it and show it to the world, I'm curious about what the two of you think of the current state of media on psychedelics and what you think is most important to be representing um, to the world. 
I have something, a quick thing to say, I think. Yeah, so that's a really good, important question. Thank you for asking. We have this kind of challenging um, dynamic in the U.S. where we uh, ha treat psychedelics, or drugs, I would say, and sex in the same way, where it's like highly um, glorified and also highly stigmatized at the same time, which causes a lot of mixed messages to people, and it makes it really challenging um, to be a consumer of media in general. Um, I just want to give an example because that brings up for me. Has anyone here seen the show, not the movie, but the show Dear White People? First off, watch it, please, if you haven't. Um, Fair-skinned people and not fair-skinned people and white, white people or not. Because it's just really good. But I bring it up because there's a really good scene in it in the second season where um, there's these two characters that are... Uh, it's basically like the archetype of the black social justice activist leader on campus. And then the like white... Um, editor of like the satirical news magazine that says stuff that's kind of racist sometimes which is kind of like this big ongoing they kind of play these two archetypes so like the person that's like hey don't be offended i'm just joking and the person's like we're talking about our literal lives stop it you know so it's kind of this interesting back and forth and it, it kind of de depicts that that dialogue really interestingly but there's a scene where they just like come to a head they like can't agree they're like we're gonna we're gonna solve this the old-fashioned way and it cuts to a scene with like loud music, it's like a party, they're at a bar. All of the vibes are like, this is a rager party. And then it slowly zooms into them on the side on the couch, rolling on MDMA, just like holding each other and talking. <laughs> like on the side, like watching people dancing, like, wow, like we really want to talk, to, talk this about. And I really appreciate it because it's, it plays on the trope of MDMA, which is like all about like the party rave craziness and the lights. But, and, then like, and it shows something what I think is fairly realistic, which is people who are um, talking in a heart-to-heart -heart context on the side of the dance floor um, with each other whispering you know, while everyone else is partying. So I, I just say that because I think that it would be interesting to see a more realistic depiction of drug use in media, one that isn't necessarily like the vice style, which is like, this is what meth users look like. This, you know, it's like a very, like, there's a lot of stigma and, like, sensationalism that occurs. And I think that humanizing people who use drugs is a critical first step, which is about things that, that they do that aren't use drugs. It's, like, who they are and other things. So I think, like, from the perspective of a media publication, like, first, maybe start by working with people who use drugs and who are willing to talk about that and are willing to be open about that. There's some people that are increasingly being visible about... Um, their relationship to drugs and drug use and people who are openly talking about um, their past injection use or whatever. And I think that bringing that stuff forward and really destigmatizing that is critical um, in general. That's, yeah. Uh, I think what's missing for me uh, in a lot of the media coverage of the medical model, in the Michael Pollan book, in a lot of media that comes out about uh, the promise of psychedelic therapy is the question of risk reduction. It's, there's not enough conversation about how to build risk reduction into social systems, into thinking about social events, into reaching out to many communities that could benefit from this knowledge. I think it's absolutely essential. If anybody wants to talk with me about risk reduction, I'm Annie at take3presents.com. That's T-A-K-N-E numeral three presents. I want to have a larger discussion about risk reduction. And notice, I'm not calling it harm reduction, which I, a term I don't particularly like, because it assumes all use is harmful, which I don't think is true. So I, I want the media to embrace risk reduction in many more different forms, for many more different communities, in a less stigmatized way. Thank you. Hi, you guys. 
Um, I have a question that's uh, related to the ways in which we're thinking about the future of creating safe and legal access to psychedelics and the different modalities beyond the medical model that that might become available. And one idea that's been propagated is the idea of uh, creating a licensure model where a person would potentially go in to a center. So this is like getting a driver's license and go and sit and with a person that would help show them how to appropriately or safely use the psychedelic. And then they would receive a license so that then they can go to a place that might look like currently looks like a cannabis dispensary to go and purchase the drug. And then they, there's a certain sort of set of rules around the ways in which they can use the psychedelic or the plant medicine, whatever it might be. And so anyways, I just have been thinking a lot about that model lately. And I was curious to hear both of your opinions about that concept. Um... Sure. Um, where's the risk reduction part of it? Uh, I, I mean, guess, do, yeah, do yeah. people will people get get instruction on on how to ingest the drug properly, on how to take care of themselves, on how to weigh it, how to know whether or not it they're becoming addicted, uh, whether they have an unhealthy relationship with it. Whether you know, like it's it's a it's a holistic approach I'm looking for, right? I think that the um, the issue that comes up for me there, and this is true of anything that involves licensing, is really uh, who's excluded and how. I think that the this, this is and this is a big point. I'm really glad this came up because this is a big point with the medical model as well. Like mm -hmm. the the fact that uh, many people with different identities are excluded from the medical model is part of how it works. That's kind of what I was tra trying to say earlier, where like the reason, the reason it's considered as legit, legitimate as it is is partially because it's so exclusive. So I think that my main concern with having a license, where it, not just for like practitioners who are offering, but specifically for people to utilize psychedelics, mm -hmm. is that that creates this interesting kind of bureaucratic and possibly kind of very significant barrier to people. And if we're criminalizing people who are not you know, haven't gone through that process but aren't criminalizing people who are, then my question is, what does it take to get that license? It's kind yeah. of what you were asking. It's like, what does that actually mean? Because if I'm thinking about context of indigenous use, like, I don't, I would not trust, like, any government entity, really, to do, create a system where indigenous practices were authentically represented because it's never done that before. The U.S. government has never done that. We've broken treaties. We've done so many things that have made it really hard for indigenous communities to trust to the U.S. government for extremely good reason, I would wonder, like, well, what would be different about this licensing structure? Like, if we're going to be talking about legal access psychedelics and if we're not talking about these indigenous frameworks, then it's a no-go for me. Yeah, who's the licensing body? Yeah. How much does the license yeah. cost? We need answers. What, <laughs> what, what do you have to do to get the license? Can you be banned from getting the license because... Because uh, you're a felon? Because you're a felon? Uh-uh. Uh-uh, you know? <laughs> uh, it's like, well, who makes those decisions, yeah. right? Is that Thanks signed by the state? Yeah, it's yeah, a good question. It's a good question. Yeah. Questions? Uh, hey, you two. Thanks so much uh, for having this talk. I love you both, and this has given me life. Uh, I had I wrote down like my sauciest question that I wanted to ask nice. over oh, and yeah. over, like four and five times, and then you just covered it Damn. over the course of the talk. Um, so I have only one left, and it's this. 
Um, I was there in the room when uh, when David Bronner handed uh, the like five million dollar giant check to Rick Doblin uh, and used the phrase legalized LSD for personal sacrament as his like end game kind of goal, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Um, and I also um, thanks so much uh, Annie for um, for facilitating psychedelic spaces. I also am an event producer among a bunch of as many other roles in this community as I can play. Mm -hmm. um, my question is about internalized drug stigma in our community because um, I was also in front of my computer like. Uh, in the week coming up to Burning Man this year, watching all of the news come out of all of our friends getting shaken down because the cops all know that we're going out to the desert to take psychedelics. And uh, the response from so many of these events is always like, oh, no, no, no. I mean, somebody might come and, like, might do that, and we can't stop them. But, like, we, we, nobody we know is taking psychedelics at Burning Man. And, uh, and I, I think that that's coming to a, to a kind of a tipping point of, like, pl our, our plausible deniability is... Disappearing, <laughs> and, and the cops' plausible deniability that, that they were there to shake down hippies for a bag of MDMA is also disappearing. And I, I wanted to know if you would speak to what you see as like the kind of like the real tipping point, or like the 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 like the impending like ignition of that sort of conflict, and where it's going to go, and how that has to, or how that may play out on our way to like just being able to be like, yeah, you know, I I go to church with my friends every week or every month, and we take this drug in the mountains, and it's our communion. I'd like to take that on. Uh, I'm a journalist by training. Journalists have a, a saying, follow the money. This is all about money, right? The shakedown that law enforcement, you know, puts people through is all about raising revenue. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a balancing game, you know, when you're on a group of event producers like the Burning Man organization and you're having your event on federal land and federal authorities control that land, they set the terms of the shakedown. And if you want to have your event on that land, you have to negotiate your way through that reality, right? Now, you can choose not to have events on federal land where you will be subjected to that. You can get uh, the Nevada congressional delegation involved to push back on local law enforcement organizations. Uh, there are a lot of ways you can go about it, but it ultimately becomes political. It's about the money, right? Forfeiture is about the money. You know, it's policing for profit. It funds local police departments when they seize your house or your vehicle or your bank account before you're convicted. Let's remember this, before conviction, right? So this, this shakedown of, of drug users is about revenue, and it's... It's, I and think, racism. Pardon? And racism. Thank you. And racism. And um, remembering that um, you need to find other funding vehicles for your local police department to wean them off of this source of money. Oh, God. Or to keep them from shaking down and abusing all the people of color in the community because the drug laws are racist. You have to find other systems. You have to reform your own social systems from within. Law enforcement plays a role in society, but they shouldn't look to shaking down drug users to fund their operations, right? So Interesting note on that, and specifically in this particular case. So what actually justified the increased enforcement around Burning Man last year was specifically funding for the opioid crisis. So because the federal government has been injecting money into all these local law enforcement entities in the last two years, 
in to combat the opioid crisis, which basically means that a lot of uh, local law enforcement um, agencies are getting more tanks and other things. So it's interesting because that particular situation is a direct function of um, like that the 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 belief or like at least the the statement that what we're doing, what they're doing, is trying to tackle this large problem. But I think that also one of the things that you brought up. Uh, is pretty relevant because it kind of comes back to this question of exceptionalism, like how do we treat people who use different kinds of drugs? And I think that you're right, there is increasingly less like deniability like within this community and the people that were kind of around that psychedelics may or may not be involved in some people's experiences. But I think that that makes it easier, unfortunately, for people who have had psychedelic experiences or who engage with the psychedelic community to fo overly focus, I think, on issues that we believe like only directly affect us. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm saying us very loosely here. And I say that because we haven't touched even on the major debate that's happening, happening right now around safe consumption sites in the United States for people who inject drugs and people who smoke drugs. And I think that the reason I bring that forward is because there is, I think, a need for people who are certainly criminalized for their use in these kind of recreational, social, more liberated contexts, and to be aware of that when we're talking about numbers here, like a lot of the actual enforcement and harm is on people who are using different kinds of drugs. And I think that while we have the privilege to talk about drugs this openly on a live stream on the internet and be like, this is how you do things in the best way, we really critically engage. And here it's... it's easier in some ways because there is a dialogue in the state of California around how to actually deal with different kinds of consumption in public health contexts. But all over the country, people are fighting. I mean, people are still fighting strings exchanges, even with decades and decades of information on that. So I think I just bring that up because I think this like exceptionalism issue that we kind of touched on at the beginning too is really like it's a really thin line. And I try to stay far away from it. In my mind, if people are choosing to engage with, if people are choosing to ingest drugs or engage with drug-using communities, and they have the privilege to talk about it or engage with it, and you know, while they certainly are experiencing side effects, like tend to be more free and non-criminalized compared to other populations, we definitely have an obligation to start engaging with these issues that are more risky. I would love for people in the psychedelic community to be talking about safe consumption. I talked about that at the, at the SF Psychedelic Society, and I ended up I was like, y'all better be talking about safe consumption, because I think that if we're not thinking about our brothers and sisters that are using drugs that are not you know, on the front cover of the New York, New York Times in a good way, then we're kind of missing the point of solidarity between us and the people that we're really trying to help. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So if you're frustrated by what appears to be the slow pace of getting psychedelic medicines and cannabis approved for medical use, well, you may want to compare the U.S. drug laws with those of other nations. Granted, uh, there now are two countries in which so-called recreational cannabis use is legal, but the rest of the world, including America, is really pretty far behind. Then again, uh, this country is orders of magnitude ahead of places like China, where just two ounces of cannabis is a crime whose punishment is death. Did you get that? Two ounces of pot in China can get you a death sentence. In fact, China, with a population of over one billion people, claims that there are only 24,000 marijuana users in the entire country. 
Now, to put that number into perspective, it has been reported that in the U.S., over one quarter of all high school students have already tried marijuana. Now, can Chinese teenagers be that far behind their American peers? Do you really believe that there are more high school students in Louisville, Kentucky smoking pot than all of the high school students in China combined? <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that while things could certainly be better on the drug war front here in the States, well, at least we still can have conversations like the one we just listened to, and I think it's your job to keep this conversation going. One of the things that I enjoyed about the conversation we just heard is the pairing of an elder with a younger. Of course, Annie may not want to be called an elder, <laughs> but that title has to do with experience and not simply age. And when it comes to experience in promoting events for the psychedelic community that are as risk-adverse as possible, I don't know anyone who has more experience in that area than Annie. So, to me, she is a young-in-age elder. And since Ishmael has a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree, he can hardly be considered young. <laughs> but I think you know what I'm pointing out here. It is these ongoing discussions between someone with a lot of experience in the trenches and someone who is at least a generation younger that I think is going to provide a good intellectual foundation for our future. However, there is still at least one elephant in the room. Old white men. <laughs> At the uh, beginning of this program, we heard Annie Oak say, and I quote, We want to move beyond only a very narrow group of people having these conversations and sitting on the boards of organizations, making policies. We really want to open up those conversations to a much wider group of communities who should be a part of those conversations, end quote. And I agree with her. Of course, to state that thought a little more precisely, and not as politically correct, what she is saying is the same thing that we've been hearing from a lot of people recently. The message is that it's time for us old white men to step aside. However, I can't do anything about the fact that there aren't enough women being offered speaking slots at various events. That is up to the event organizers. So, rather than criticize us old white men who take the trouble and time to go to these events and speak, why not tell the organizers that you're tired of so many male speakers? If you truly want fewer old white men speaking at your events, well, then stop inviting us. It's really that simple. <laughs> okay, uh, that's enough grumpiness for now from this old white man, but it did feel really good to get it off my chest, so thanks for listening. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>